Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM Louisville. Also streaming worldwide at forwardradio.org. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 351, the 2022 National Security Strategy. The National Security Strategy is a document that is published annually by the White House. This one was published on October 12th, 2022, and it of course relates to national defense. So why are we talking about national defense on the climate report? Well, for one thing, the Pentagon is the world's biggest consumer of fossil fuels. Therefore, it's a huge contributor to greenhouse gases and global warming. In addition to that, the purpose of our military, arguably, is to preserve our unfair advantage on the world stage. We've got 5% of the world's population. We consume 25% of the world's resources. Arguably, that's an unfair advantage. And the purpose of the military is to enforce U.S. hegemony. It's to keep us in place as the world's hegemon, the world's bully, I would say. Another reason we're talking about national defense on the climate report is that consumption takes a lot of fossil fuels and is therefore a major cause of global warming. In addition to this, war is a moral issue and climate is a moral issue. We probably won't be able to solve the problem of climate change if we are still so deeply in denial about the moral status of our country. In addition to this, war involves important questions about how we are governed and by whom we are governed. Climate also involves the same important questions about how we are governed and by whom we are governed. If we are in denial about how we are governed and by whom we are governed, then we probably won't be able to solve the climate change issue. What I'm saying is that Arguably, we are governed by the military-industrial complex and not by the people. And as long as we're in denial about that, we have an imperative to get clear on how we are really governed. Identifying the problem is half the solution. We must properly identify a problem before we can solve it. Any doctor will tell you that the proper diagnosis is a prerequisite to finding a cure. So if we're running around saying, oh, we have this democracy that basically works, except for those Republicans or except for those Trumpers, those gun nuts, or if we have a government that works except for Russia, Russia, oh no, Russia. Well, that's just not the type of mentality or the type of public discourse that's going to solve any problems, least of all our environmental problems. So how are we going to approach the reading of this report? By the way, anybody can get this report if you just Google National Defense Strategy and you'll find the National Defense Strategy of 2022. So we're citizens in a democracy, at least we like to think we live in a democracy. So as citizens who live in a democracy, isn't it our job to think critically about what our government is telling us? It goes without saying, doesn't it? that in a democracy, 
we need to think critically about what our government is telling us. So when we read this report, we should ask, how believable are the words we are reading? We should also ask what narrative is being supported because behind the news, there's always a narrative. Narrative generally involves some concept of what's the problem, what's the solution. It generally involves some concept of who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. And these narratives are powerful. These stories that were being told are powerful. So let me read you the words of John Foster Dulles. John Foster Dulles was the Secretary of State in the Eisenhower administration. He had a great deal to do with how the Cold War began. And he says, in order to bring a nation to support the burdens incident to maintaining great military establishments, it is necessary to create an emotional state akin to war psychology. There must be the portrayal of an external menace or of internal conditions rendered intolerable by the unjust restraints of foreign nations. This involves the development to a high degree of the nation hero, nation villain ideology and the arousing of the population to a sense of the duty of sacrifice. So what he's saying here in so many words, if I may take a little bit of liberty, he's saying we have to tell people fairy tales so that they will be willing to, to sacrifice and to go to war, either send their bodies into harm's way as part of the war effort, send their family members into harm's way as part of the war effort, or more to the point, pay taxes year after year after year after year. And the only way we can get them to do that is to convince them that there is an external menace. So for time immemorial, the external menace has been Russia, Russia. And of course, China, the PRC, the big bad PRC, the, the Chinese Communist Party. And Russia and China are horning in on our action. China and Russia pose a threat to us. And China and Russia probably have infiltrators right here in our midst. So this is what I'm saying by the narrative. Pay careful attention to the narrative you are being told. So ask what narrative is being supported. And then also as we read through this, let's ask what are other countries around the world hearing and thinking when they hear or read these words. You know, all things considered based on what they know about the United States because they've got U.S. guns pointed at them or even if they're allies, they're being dragged in along according to the United States agenda. So what is the rest of the world hearing and thinking when they hear or read these words. I'm going to take the position that the words we're about to read in the president's national security strategy, and it could be any president, it could be a Democrat or a Republican, heaven forbid we should have a third choice, but I'm going to take the position that the words that we're about to read are completely disingenuous. That is, they are insincere and duplicitous. I'm going to take the position that the words we're about to read are ahistorical, 
They are not rooted in historical fact or present reality. And I'm going to take the position that the words we're about to read are threatening to other countries because other countries know what they really mean. Other countries and other people around the world know that the United States is not really supporting democracies around the world. If we were supporting democracies, we wouldn't be supporting Saudi Arabia. And then there are other countries like Colombia or Indonesia or Honduras or El Salvador or Guatemala that have a, a democracy, kind of a, a veneer of democracy, but the real people that are really in charge are the U.S.-supported military and the U.S.-supported security states. So people around the world know that the United States is being completely disingenuous when we talk about supporting democracy and human rights. And I'm going to take the position that these words called the National Defense Strategy are not about defense. They are about aggression. And, you know, under international law, not that we have to pay attention to international law, but under international law, a war of aggression is a capital crime. You know, we talk about terrorism all the time, but a war of aggression in international law is even worse than terrorism because a war of aggression includes terrorism. And I'm going to take the word, take the position that these words called the national defense strategy are not making the American people safer. They are creating a world that is much more dangerous for the American people. So any claim that we are defending ourselves is completely, that, that's ahistorical. It's not rooted in the facts of history or the reality of the present time. I'm going to take the position that these words called the National Defense Strategy are designed to make money for the military-industrial complex and all of Wall Street, because all of Wall Street benefits from U.S. hegemony. All of Wall Street benefits from the dominance of the U.S. around the world. So they're designed to make money for the military-industrial complex and all of Wall Street, but they are not for the good of the American people or the people of the world. There's all this rhetoric about how this makes the world, how our strong defense makes the world a better place for the people of the world or makes America a better place for the people of America. There's all this rhetoric, but none of that is supported in reality. And I'm going to take the word with the position that these words constitute high sounding rhetoric that masks a deeply violent country, a deeply violent government and a deeply violent foreign policy. Not just a deeply violent military policy, but a deeply violent trade policy. Because through our trade policy, our trade policy goes against American workers because NAFTA makes American workers compete with people all over the world. The World Trade Organization makes American workers compete with people all over the world. It's a race to the bottom. But also, it's bad for the people of the world. Our, our trade policy and our military policy has the effect of depriving people of the right to use the resources of their own country, 
Take a, pick a country anywhere, especially the poorest countries, like Haiti is in the news again recently. Well, Haiti has been completely dominated by the United States for 200 years and more. And the policy with respect to Haiti has always been, look, the government of Haiti can't not prevent. The U.S. policy with respect to Haiti has always been that the, the government of Haiti cannot put any limitations on the ability of foreign investors or foreign corporations to buy and control the land in Haiti or the markets in Haiti. It would be a different world if the government of Haiti was allowed to be sovereign, to protect the rights and interests of its people, and to put limitations on the ability of foreign corporations and foreign investors to own and control land in Haiti. As a result, since they don't have any control, then you have people really poor, and poverty is violent, because you know, poverty not only deprives people of what they should have coming to them, but it deprives people of health, and often poverty deprives people of their lives. 25,000 people every day, according to the United Nations, 25,000 people every day die of hunger and related illnesses. 10,000 of those people are children. 10,000 people die every day as a result of poverty or as a result of hunger and related illnesses. Much of that, I would argue, is a direct, direct result of U.S. military policy and trade policy. I want to give you one more thing to think about before we get into the national security strategy. And it is this quote by James Madison. This is from 1795. James Madison is the chief architect of our Constitution, and therefore, you know, he was kind of a heavy hitter back in the days when the concept of the United States was being thought of and then fleshed out. He wrote the following just a few years after the Constitution. He says, of all the enemies to public liberty, war is, perhaps, the most to be dreaded, because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies, from these proceed debts and taxes, and armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. No nation could preserve its freedom in the midst of continual warfare. So what you know, Madison is saying here is that war, when we get, have all this war going on, it's harmful to us. Even if we might win a war, the war is harmful to us because, it, he says, of all the enemies to public liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is the parent of armies. From these proceed debts and taxes, and armies and debts and taxes are the known instruments for bringing the many under the domination of the few. So I've done some calculating, and I calculate that on average, on a per capita basis, 
Americans spend about $2,500 per year per person on war. Take $2,500 and multiply that over a 75-year lifetime, and everybody could buy a house with what we pay for war. You could, you know, that could be a substantial part of your retirement on what we pay on war. So we are hurting ourselves by letting these charlatans act like they're good guys when they're imposing upon us the world's largest military budget. So let's look now at what these charlatans have to say. This is from page two of the National Security Strategy, October 12, 2022, from President Biden. It says, the People's Republic of China harbors the intention and increasingly the capacity to reshape the international order in favor of one that tilts the global playing field to its benefit, even as the United States remains committed to managing the competition between, uh, between our countries responsibly. So there, we're going to vilify the People's Republic of China. And why? Why are we doing that? We're always preparing. The, that's the narrative I was telling you about. We're always, the, the media and the politicians are always preparing the public to, for the idea that China's the bad guy, China's the adversary. And the president is, is saying that the People's Republic of China harbors the intention and increasingly the capacity to reshape the international order. So that's, China can't do that. That's our job. We're supposed to be the ones that shape the international order in our favor. And we're supposed to make the rules and we're supposed to decide who the rules apply to and who the rules don't apply to and they don't apply to us. Can you imagine the president or any politician favoring the, the, the United Nations uh, being in the authority and in the position to settle a dispute between countries? Can you imagine President Biden saying, hey, we're going to let the United Nations decide what ought to happen in Ukraine? Now, we've talked about China. Let's talk about Russia. It says Russia's brutal and unprovoked war on its neighbor, Ukraine, has shattered peace in Europe and impacted uh, stability everywhere. And its reckless nuclear threats endanger the global nonproliferation regime. Autocrats are working overtime to undermine democracy and export a model of governance marked by repression at home and coercion abroad. So the, here we are, finger pointing at Russia for a war of aggression. And technically, Russia is engaging in a war of aggression. I'm not going to deny that, and I'm not going to say it, it, it's right. But take whatever they're doing and multiply it by 20 or a hundred, and you get an idea of, of what the United States has been doing in the world, all the way up until the present. One difference is that Russia is dealing with its own legitimate interests. I mean, you had, uh, let's, do, let's name about five or six major, five or six people that in the last few years all predicted that any Russian leader would consider it unacceptable for the United States to expand NATO into Ukraine and to try to exert control over the Black Sea. These people include 
Noam Chomsky, John Mearsheimer, Henry Kissinger, Joe Biden, John Pilger. Now, I just named a group of people that are all over the map, from left to right. You know, Mearsheimer and Kissinger are in the so-called realist camp in foreign policy. And, you know, you know who Joe Biden is. And then you have Noam Chomsky. So these people disagree on a lot of things, but they all agreed that if you back Russia, that we're backing Russia into a corner by expanding NATO up to the border, by trying to get um, Ukraine into NATO, and by controlling, trying to control the Black Sea. And what Russia is doing bears no resemblance to what the United States has been doing for the last 77 years since the end of World War II. So it is rank hypocrisy to, and it's rank hypocrisy and it's also selective indignation to look at what Russia is doing and act like it's any different from what we've been doing for a long time, only on a larger scale. I'm gonna take just a couple of minutes and rattle off this list that I've, that I've prepared, and I call it the U.S. foreign policy body count. And these are just some major examples. There's a lot of examples that are not included. Korea in the 1950s, 3 million dead as a direct result of U.S. military aggression. Guatemala from 1954 to 1994, 200,000 dead as a direct result of a U.S. orchestrated civil war in Guatemala. Vietnam, 1960 to 75, 3 million dead as a direct result of, you know, the, the most brutal aggression in, in history is what the U.S. did in Vietnam. But we had all the best intentions, right? Well, I don't care about the intentions. In fact, there weren't good intentions, but so moving along. Indonesia in the 1960s. Eh, North of 500,000 dead in a CIA operation that happened so quickly and so quietly that even the people of Indonesia have not been able to talk about it very much until the present. There's a very good book on this called The Jakarta Method. El Salvador from 1970 to 1990, 100,000 dead as a direct result of U.S. meddling. Chile in the 1970s, 30,000 people. Nicaragua in the 1980s, 50,000 people. Iraq sank, the sanctions related to Iraq in the 1990s uh, killed several hundred thousand people. Afghanistan, 2001 to the present, 200,000 people in, in a war, a brutal war of aggression. Yemen, 2014. Now we're, the U.S. is assisting the Saudis in a brutal genocide which is redundant, a genocide in Yemen that is happening with our support. The U.S. right now, as we speak, is complicit in a genocide in Yemen. Estimated dead, 400,000. This is not going back decades. This is happening right now as we speak. And in, in Syria, you have a, a U.S. orchestrated civil war in Syria estimated 400,000 to 500,000 dead as a result of that. And that started as a CIA operation called Timber Sycamore in the Obama administration. 
So notwithstanding all the millions dead as a direct result of U.S. foreign policy, and we're just getting started. Nine million people die every year as a direct result of hunger that I would say they die of hunger and related causes. And I would argue that that's a direct result of U.S. foreign policy. It's a direct result of U.S. military policy and trade policy. If we wanted that to be different, we have the capability of making it different, mainly by stopping the harm that we are already doing. Mainly when we, do, you know, when we support dictators and, and cronies in other countries, when we empower other countries to practice brutal repression of their own people, when we go into countries and say, hey, you're not allowed to have the right to own and control your own resources. That's our job. We're going to decide who owns and controls your own resources, and not least of which, we're going to play various groups against one another. And we are, you know, more often than not, we are going to ensure that the bad guys stay in power. More often than not, we are going to ensure that the most violent and rapacious people stay in power. This is Pinochet in Chile. This is, um, this is Saharto in, in Indonesia. This is Rios Mont in Guatemala. This is uh, uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil up until yesterday. So when we talk about regime change, it's not just child's play. We put in place the people that are able and willing to do violence to their own people and their neighbors. Let me wrap up with some words by Martin Luther King Jr. This is 1968. This is 1967. Martin Luther King died at the height of the Vietnam War. And these words were spoken at the Riverside Church one year before he died. He said, the final phase of our national sickness is the disease of militarism. We are arrogant in professing to be concerned about the freedom of foreign nations while not setting our own house in order. No enemy has ever been able to cause such damage to us as we inflict upon ourselves. When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A civilization can flounder as readily in the face of moral bankruptcy as it can through financial bankruptcy. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Got less than a minute. Let me leave you with something to think about. We need to live in reality, not in fantasy land. We need to know how we are really governed and not what we learned in grade school. And we need to know that we have deeply violent leaders who do not care one bit about you 
or me or our children or the climate. This is demonstrably true and we need to get a grip on reality. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a nice day.